I was a person who didn't participate as much as maybe I could have. I often felt quite alone, quite isolated, but I still wanted to be engaged, and so I was an observer. And I think when you watch people and you see the way they affect one another, those things start to imprint themselves on your being. And for me, what I loved about cinema is when I finally stumbled onto filmmaking, here was a place where I could express what I thought was this very odd, weird way I learned to navigate the world, which was by watching people and really investigating small gestures. Because in my life, it was always the smallest gestures that rang the loudest for me. The very gentle or kind things that people did for me unexpectedly would often bring on these wells of catharsis. If you've seen the film Moonlight, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2017, you'll recall the rough Miami neighborhood where much of the action took place. Some years ago, that area was the home of the film's young director, Barry Jenkins. Now, after that sensational victory at the Oscars that saw La La Land accidentally announced as the winner, Barry's life has taken some surprising turns. His latest film, If Beale Street Could Talk, sees him fulfilling a long-held dream of adapting the great James Baldwin. And although the events of the film take place in Harlem in the early 1970s, its themes of racial prejudice at the hands of law enforcement are deeply resonant today. I'm Ben Rylan, and I'm pleased to say that Barry Jenkins joined me here at Midori House in London for the big interview. Barry, it's been quite a ride from promoting Moonlight to uh, an Oscar winner. You must be still pinching yourself, I assume. Uh, pinching myself, <laughs> not quite, but yeah. Pretty cool. Really, really wild ride at the end, for sure. Well, the journey, I think, has been all the more extraordinary for you because, of course, when you were younger, you never wanted to be a filmmaker, did you? This is a complete U-turn, I suppose, from where you were heading when you were much younger. Yeah, it was um, kind of by happenstance. I was already at undergrad for about three years before I realized that there was a film school. And it wasn't something that I decided, oh, I want to become a filmmaker. I just thought, oh, I like movies. There happens to be a film school here. Let me try this out. And now here we are, I guess, 15 years later. Going back to when you were much younger, I mean, you were quite poor growing up. And the area where you grew up was actually the same area seen in Moonlight. Mm -hmm. What was your exposure to movies like back then? It was mostly like really big budget commercial films, like black people in the neighborhood I grew up in. We always went to the movies. So it was like The Color Purple or Coming to America, things like that. The family would all get together and catch the bus and go see those things. And even then, it just didn't occur to me, even though those were like black films, that, oh, then there must be black people involved in the making of them. It was just something that I enjoyed, but not something I wanted to possess. Did you ever, ever consider back then that doing something creative, making movies or even even writing something, did that occur to you as something that could actually be a career? Not a career. I always enjoyed writing. I had a teacher in third and fourth grade who encouraged me to write. My grandma would take us fishing on the weekends. And she said, oh, you're the only kid in this neighborhood in the projects who goes out to nature on the weekend. So you should share that with your classmates. She'd have me write down these weekend trips I took with my grandmother and then read them out loud to the class. And that's my earliest memory of writing. But even then, I was like, oh, this is just something that my teacher forces me to do. And even though I enjoy it, there's no way I could actually like do this for a living someday. And so, again, it was in one ear 
and out the other. And then somehow, 10 years later, I just kind of slipped back into it. And of course, as we mentioned, the area that you grew up was quite rough and Mm -hmm. your family background was quite a difficult one as Mm -hmm. well. Your mother was dealing with addiction. Looking back at your childhood back then, what would the word ambition have meant to a young Barry Jenkins? What what did you see in that word? You know, I thought that going to college at all was something to uh, aspire to. And even then, I didn't even take that very seriously. You know, I only went to uh, university because there were these public funds, the Florida Lottery, that paid for the tuition of high-achieving students. And I was a good student, so I didn't really have much ambition beyond maybe thinking it might be okay to go to college because, you know, if you saw Moonlight, the character Naomi Harris plays is essentially my mom, and the main character in that film is essentially me. You don't look at what that kid's going through and go, oh, yeah, that kid's going to go to Harvard or Yale. You know, I realize now that, of course, that's possible. But back then, when I was living that life, it just didn't seem attainable. But even if you said that to people now who are perhaps still in that neighborhood, it would be difficult to convince anyone living in that life, in that reality, that just because you did it, it's possible for anyone. Is that part of the problem, that that people, no matter how much you tell them and how much it's proven, Mm -hmm. that something else is possible? It's difficult to make people really believe it. It's difficult, but, you know, I think of, we've been starting this conversation, this idea of ambition and the things that I did or did not want to become when I was a child. And one of my best memories, one of my fondest memories from the process of making Moonlight was being in the neighborhood on set as the director and inviting all the neighborhood children who would be out watching us make the film and they would be outside at night, which is a rarity for them because all the drug dealers shoot out all the street lights. but you need big lights to make a movie. And so these kids at the age of 8, 9, 10, 12 are watching me, a young black man, direct all these white crew persons to tell the story about these black actors in front of the camera. And I could see in their eyes right away, oh, this is possible because here's this dude, he's doing it and he's from here, he looks like me. So I think when you have those very real world lived examples, which I guess I am now one of now, it sort of reduces that distance between what you feel is possible and what I like to say is what you allow yourself to dream to the point of taking dreams off the table because Barry Jenkins is real, you know, he's not some fictive personality. Here's a guy who's like literally made this movie in the projects that won best best picture. So yeah, I guess it's all the shit's attainable now. <laughs> it's about representation then. Uh, it's about representation, but also to representation, there's all these words, representation, diversity, change, all this stuff. I think when you can really look at someone and touch them, like literally kids were sitting in my director's chair, it goes beyond representation. Then it's just like us. I think it's just us. A childhood like the one you had could have broken you. It could have prevented you from really getting out of that sort of world. It could have broken anyone. Mm -hmm. Why did it not break you? You know, I've been thinking about that, trying to unpack it. I mean, maybe it did break me. I happened to be here, which doesn't mean I I wasn't broken at some point on the path towards getting here. And to be brutally honest, I actually was. After making my first feature, Medicine for Melancholy, which screened at the London Film Festival in 2008, I pretty much gave up on the idea of making another film. Five years passed and like nothing happened with my career. And my friend, Dale Romanski, who's a producer on Moonlight and this new film of Bill Street Could Talk, she more or less picked me up like off the canvas and said, this is unacceptable. You have to make another film. We have to figure out what we're going to do and I will hold your hand and help you do it. And that talk turned into Moonlight and if Bill Street Could Talk. But to answer your question, I don't really know. I think I just always had people who cared about me and who at the right moments, you know, people like my sister, 
teachers and my friends that I made in film school, uh, especially, they just refused to allow me to revel in my brokenness. And I think that's what a lot of us need as we're trying to navigate this crazy thing we call life. When I watch your films, I see someone who's clearly very capable of communicating these very tender, raw emotions that are often hard to get across on screen without actually saying it. And yet your films can communicate a lot just from a look. There's a certain language going on here. But what I don't understand is that when I look at your life story, there's not a a clear recipe here for how you've learned that thing, whatever that thing happens to be. Where does that come from? Where did you get that filmmaking language from? I think part of it goes back to, and you know, it's, it's a really nice way to frame this conversation with the way I grew up. I was a person who didn't participate as much as maybe I could have. I was often, often felt quite alone, quite isolated, but I still wanted to be engaged. And so I was an observer. I was in, sometimes an observer in my own life. And I think when you watch people and you see the way they affect one another, those things start to imprint themselves on your being. And for me, what I loved about cinema is when I finally stumbled onto filmmaking, here was a place where I could express what I thought was this very odd, weird way I learned to navigate the world, which was by watching people and really investigating small gestures. Because in my life, it was always the smallest gestures that rang the loudest for me, the very gentle or kind things that people did for me unexpectedly would often bring on these wells of catharsis. And I think now in the films that I make, whatever, however that came about, I'm trying to translate that feeling um, that I've had throughout my life um, to these characters. And what I love about what I've gotten to do in these last two films is the actors really understand it. And I think they come to work with us, and I say us, myself and my cinematographer, James Laxton, because they know, oh, if I do this really small thing that often goes unnoticed, Barry Jenkins and James Laxon are going to blow it the hell up, you know, and make sure it's felt. So, you know, it's funny. We're talking about all these things that maybe could have been or should have been handicaps for me as a storyteller, as a person, as a filmmaker, etc. But I see them as strengths in a certain way. And I think that had I grown up with a, a silver spoon or had I gone to Harvard or Yale or anything like that, I wouldn't be the filmmaker that I am today. And I maybe wouldn't be able to make the observations that I do in my work. But of course, you would have had to deal with those sorts of people, those people that I suppose in some ways did grow up with a silver spoon in Mm -hmm. their mouths. What was it like for you to come from the background you did and you want to be a filmmaker? You're encountering these people who perhaps haven't struggled as much as you've had to struggle. You must have approached that situation and thought, I'm handicapped by all these weaknesses. How did you overcome that feeling? I never had like a, a Ralph Macchio and Karate Kid moment where I was in love with this girl and I was from the wrong side of the tracks and then I went to the party and they thought I was the help staff and then I threw spaghetti all over the rich dude. That, that never happened <laughs> with me. But I do remember getting into film school and understanding that the tools we were using to make these films, these other kids had grown up with. They had cameras, they had parents who were writers or artists and things like that. It was never anything that they used in an aggressive way to demean me or to subjugate me or my work. Instead, I decided, okay, this is a proving ground. I'm going to do whatever I can to really investigate and understand why this difference exists between us, this handicap, and being able to apply the craft. Because there's nothing deficient about my intelligence or my person, so I'm going to go out. I took a year off from university and trained myself in the tools of filmmaking and learning still photography and watching all these weird foreign films and reading about light and things like that. And then I went back in and the handicap was erased in one year. The handicap was completely erased. And again, back about representation and and things like that, it was like I didn't need to see someone like me 
who knew how to do these things to be inspired to learn to do them, I just thought, oh, I think it's within me to catch up because this thing shouldn't be the barrier to ability between me and these people. And when I came back into the program, it was true. I was like, okay, yeah, I can make films just as good as these kids from the other side of the tracks, but they don't have the voice that I have, so I'm going to take it one step further. We should backtrack just slightly because... Mm -hmm. You, of course, didn't just go into film school quite early on. You started that rather late because you at first pivoted to football, Mm -hmm. which confuses me somewhat because I come from a sport-loving nation. And Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, creativity and football make for fairly strange bedfellows. How did that work out? I think it worked out really well. I think on my film sets, I'm kind of like a football coach. And what I like about that is the football coach knows, I'll speak in your country sport, the language of your country sport, the football coach can't go out and be the striker. He cannot. But he can figure out the shape. And he knows that the wing, you know, maybe needs to pinch in a little bit, you know, as the game goes on. But he can't go out there and actually do the pinch. And so for me, one, I realized my ability as a football player was quite limited. And so by the time I got to college, that was done. But again, I think these things that maybe were handicaps initially kind of proved themselves to be strengths because when I first went to university, I studied English literature and then I switched to creative writing. And it wasn't until three years after being at university and three years very solidly knowing I could not be a professional football player that I discovered there was a film school at Florida State. And so while I took that year off to catch up to the other kids, I was still working towards my degree in creative writing. What happened was when I started writing screenplays, my screenplays had this element of interiority, uh, which is very difficult to translate into cinema. But as a literature student, as trying to write literature, it's all about the interior mind, translating that into story form. And so when I brought that into my filmmaking, again, there was something distinct between the work I was doing and the work my peers were doing. It actually ended up being like the best way to get into filmmaking. Instead of being some 15-year-old kid with a camcorder who wants to be Steven Spielberg, I was this guy who started off, I felt like, at a disadvantage, and I did all this work to catch up. And looking back on it, even the way I write screenplays now is really heavily affected by this delayed process getting into filmmaking. Let's talk about James Baldwin then, because obviously he has had a massive impact on on your life, on your creativity. When did you first discover James Baldwin? I discovered James Baldwin in the same window undergrad. I was dating a a young woman. I think I was like a, she's going to kill me for this. I think I was like a sophomore and she was like a senior. I mean, she was smarter than me. She was more attractive. She was more worldly. I don't know why she was dating me. She didn't date me very long. And when she broke up with me, as a way of showing me my world needed to expand, she said, you need to read James Baldwin. And she recommended I read The Fire Next Time in Giovanni's room. And I thought highly of her. So I did read those two things. and, uh, And I was hooked. Like my mind was just blown. I remember not long after Moonlight, we spoke and you said that your reasons for wanting to adapt If Beale Street Could Talk was simply because it's Baldwin, it's Baldwin, it's Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Explain the gravity of Baldwin's words for you. You know, for me to read someone, again, again, this whole conversation coming back to representation, to read an author who was from a place like me, who grew up in a different time, but I think in the same way that I did, and then to read Giovanni's Room in the Fire Next Time and see just how expansive his view was, just how expansive his experience was, it was eye-opening. Again, it was where I realized, okay, there are things that I don't know, but then I read Baldwin and I go, oh, but the feeling comes from his home, from the place that he's from. And I thought, oh, maybe I can do that as well. And I just always felt like he, in a very particular way, speaks to what it feels like to be a black human being, what it feels like to be a human being, an American, just like a citizen of the world, anything that exists. I think Baldwin could write about atoms, and it would be like lush and sensual and romantic. 
but it would also be angry and bitter and just like fervent as hell. And I've always responded to his writing in a way, even when he's writing about intellectual things, it gives me visual impressions. And he had never been adopted before. And I thought, I have to do this. There was a wonderful documentary about Baldwin by Raoul Peck that came out in 2016. It was called I Am Not Your Negro. And it included a clip of Baldwin visiting San Francisco in 1963, where he stumbles upon a couple of young men on the street and begins discussing the possibility of a black president. I just want you to listen to a part of their conversation. There's going to be a Negro president in this country. There never will be a Negro president in this country. Why do you say that? We can't get jobs. How are we going to be a president? Got me. But I want you to think about this. There will be a Negro president of this country. But it will not be the country that we, that we are sitting in now. But if you say to yourself, there never will be a Negro president of this country, then what you're doing is agreeing with white people who say you are inferior. It's not important, really, you know, whether or not there's a Negro president. I mean, in that way. What's important is that you should realize that you can become, you can become the president. There's nothing anybody, anybody can do that you can't do. Wow. It's such a wonderful, wonderful... But see, moment. this is what I mean. The man is like a prophet. It's insane. The conversation could have happened nine years ago, ten years ago. Hell, the conversation could happen tomorrow because now I'm sure people are feeling like there will never be another Negro president. Or people are feeling like there will never be a female president because the last two years have been so hard on everybody. I mean, Baldwin is just like eternal, eternal. So I've seen that, by the way, because I made a short film... Uh, with the same cinematographer in 2010 called Remigration. And it's about this fictional version of San Francisco in the future where there are no working class people in the city. And so the city creates this government program to bring working class people back to the city. And we actually use a clip from that documentary. One of the children in the film is like watching it on television and her mind, like my mind, is being blown. But we didn't use that part and we should have. Damn it, I'm pissed now. (laughs) I had to go back and re-edit it. (laughs) One thing that strikes me about Baldwin, and of course he was speaking in 1963 there, but even as you say, speaking now, It must be difficult to make these sorts of points, like the point he's making there, like the point you're making in your film, If Beale Street Could Talk. You're making very serious points here about the way that race relations work in America, in the world more broadly, I'm sure, as well. And yet it's being done without anger and frustration, even though the anger and frustration must be there in the back of your mind, in the back of Baldwin's mind, as we know. How do you get those points across with the tender, raw emotion and the subtlety that that comes across in your films, in Baldwin's words? I think I've experienced anger in my life, and I think I've had people try to make salient points through anger in my life. And I refer to them as salient points because the points would have gotten through had they not been filtered through anger. And we talk about being broken or not being broken. Uh, The few times I have allowed myself to feel broken or to revel in the brokenness have been when I've let anger get the best of me. So, yeah, I'm pissed off. And I think you watch the last two films. I think even if you watch Medicine for Malachi, you watch all three films, there's some element of being really pissed off or being disillusioned. But if I allow my storytelling, my voice, my aesthetic to be filtered through that prism, I think it might break the thing that I'm attempting to say in a certain way. So the tenderness you're speaking of, I think it goes part and parcel with this idea that in my personal life and my life as a human being, 
I just don't see anger or bitterness as a solid place to work from. And I think also, too, what I love about the conversation Mr. Baldwin is having with those men is they are pissed off. They are bitter and they are broken. And I think he understands that to give them back the energy they're all they're already reveling in is not going to prove his point. It's not going to help the point get across. So um, I think I approach the films that we build in the same way, even though they are talking about things, the films are that really should piss us all off. Well, uh, of course, you started work on If Beale Street Could Talk before you had the Oscar, before you had the rights. What difference did getting the Oscar make to approaching this project for you? None, actually. One of the really lovely things about this project and Moonlight, uh, I wrote them at the same time in the summer of 2013. I wrote Moonlight in Brussels, and then I went to Berlin via train and wrote A Bill Street Could Talk. So they kind of went hand in hand, and I always knew that I wanted to make this one immediately after the last one. The process of unlocking the rights began in 2013, and so Moonlight didn't exist when we began this process. And the Baldwin estate is really adamant about mentioning not Moonlight, but Medicine for Melancholy, when they explain why they allowed us to make this film. So, no, the Oscars didn't have any effect on it, really. To be brutally honest, it was like the opposite way around. I think going right into If Bill Street Could Talk really helped me process and sort of move away from all the madness of uh, the Academy Awards and everything. It's interesting to look at the long gestation period that this project had for you. And, of course, it's based on a book, which is quite old in itself. And yet the film comes across as as quite topical, quite timely. It feels like something that specifically is saying something about now. Mm -hmm. Now, I can have my own theories on that, but I'd like to know, why do you feel like it's talking to now? I think it's just Baldwin. I mean, look, if you had played that clip, you know, 10 years ago before Barack Obama was elected, you'd have been like, holy shit, this is insane. And I think it's just this this quality in Baldwin that he's speaking to the human condition. And he's also speaking to the idea of America quite often. And people like to think, oh, we have a president who is doing God knows what. And, oh, the world is on fire. The country's on fire. And I think of Baldwin here, he would very clearly say, but it's always been on fire. Haven't you been paying attention? And I think for that reason, the work is still very relevant. It's old, but it ages like fine wine. I want to ask you about a project that you worked on that you later scrapped. You had written a film treatment about your mother, but uh, I understand that you decided not to proceed with that because you thought it was too personal. Mm -hmm. Do you find that idea of being personal and maybe not too personal in your filmmaking, is that a balancing act? Because when I look at filmmaking, sometimes I feel like there aren't enough personal, deeply personal films at the cinema. And then, of course, mm. your film Moonlight and uh, If Bill Streak Will Talk, of course, they are personal films, but they feel mm-hmm. like the exception to the rule at the moment. Do we need more personal filmmaking? I think we do, and I think I learned that lesson the hard way. I scrapped that film, and like I said, I went through this five-year gap in my career. Had I made that film, the gap probably would have been much shorter. I mean, the process of making that film kind of made me turn into the process of making Moonlight, which I assumed was about Terrell and his mom, but I very quickly realized it was also about me and my mom. So I think that was a mistake, and I think the process of realizing that is what gave me the confidence to go out and make Moonlight. And I think when you're sitting in the cinema and you see something that comes from the source, that comes from the heart, that comes from the gut, that is personal, you can feel the difference. And I think in that way, when I meet young filmmakers and they ask me, oh, what do I have to do to like get a career in film? The only two things I can really tell them with truthfulness and honesty is to work with your friends and make it personal. So, yeah, I do think we need a more personal aesthetic, a more personal cinema in the cinemas. 
My first impression after seeing Moonlight, which was the first film of yours that I did see, was that it made it very easy to see the beauty in something that you might not otherwise see as beautiful. Mm -hmm. Your film Moonlight and your film If Bill Street Could Talk, they're taking place in worlds that are quite rough and not pleasant in many ways, and yet they come across as very, very beautiful. Has making films made it easier for you to see the beauty in things that may not immediately be quite pleasant? Yeah, I think it's made me more uh, attuned to the beauty that's always been present in my life. I think the the life of black folks in America has always been, unfortunately, surrounded in systemic despair, just so many dark, heavy things, and suffering and pain through no or through little fault of the people doing the suffering, and yet we love, we celebrate. There's so much joy and just vitality in black folks in America. And I think making these films has made me realize that it's always been the case. You know, even though my childhood was heavy, there are moments of just extreme abject beauty in my memories, and it's why Moonlight looks the way it does, and it's why Bill Street looks the way it does, feels the way those films do. And I think if there's anything about Baldwin's work that I've been able to really, really ingest and take with me and apply to my work, it's this idea that despite the bitterness and the, the anger of the things Baldwin is talking about and how those things make him feel, if you ever heard James Baldwin laugh, then you would know that he also understood that there was such, such extreme beauty and joy in living a life this way through the prism of so much suffering. And yet, here we are. You know, you cannot break us. And of the us, I'm speaking of, of black folks, myself and, and Mr. Baldwin and the subjects of our work. So it's been a really lovely run with these last two films. Things I was maybe trying to get away from and now understand that were always a part of me. When you hear James Baldwin talk, it comes across as though, because you referenced the the fact that he obviously was quite angry and frustrated mm-hmm. in, in the back of his mind often. And yet, when we heard him speak to those young people in San Francisco earlier, you get this idea that he's he's speaking in a sort of fatherly tone, like he sees himself as a mentor. He understands that because he's in the public eye, he has a voice that a lot of people don't have, and he can speak in a way that articulates a point that a lot of people can't do. You're in the public eye now. How do you deal with that idea that you too have a voice that not everyone has and maybe there's a responsibility that comes with that too? Is that something that, that you feel that, that weighs on you sometimes? Yeah, it's something I've had to become more aware of and take more notice of, especially in the wake of everything that happened with Moonlight. And it's something that I don't enjoy. I like to say, you know, my voice is in my work. Here are the films. But I also realize, too, because of the very privileged position I find myself in, that that's not enough and it's not acceptable. So it is something that I'm very aware of and I'm trying to be more responsible by sitting down and being very open and honest with folks like yourself. You're an Oscar winner, obviously, and uh, you've just adapted James Baldwin, which my understanding is... I'm sorry, one I almost your... laughed. You said obviously, and I was like, well, not so obviously, but in the end, <laughs> obviously. You fulfilled one of your big dreams now, right? I mean, obviously standing up on stage would be uh, at the Oscars would be a dream for a lot of people, but I think perhaps the bigger dream for you was adapting James Baldwin into into the film that you're releasing now. What inspires you now? What comes next for Barry Jenkins? Where do you see your craft taking you? I just like telling stories. You know, I, I love being on set. I love collaborating with, I'll say my friends, you know, but that friend group is expanding now. I've always worked exclusively with my friends. Case in point, I was up till 2 a.m. last night. I apologize if I'm not as fresh and with it um, as I should be in this interview. I'm working on another project. I just had to get the pages done. And so I think I'll always be someone who just wants to tell 
stories and wants to tell them in, I think, uh, a very visceral and, for me, cinematically challenging way. I often want to keep challenging myself. There's this sense of wonder and awe that I get from watching movies, and I'm always trying to reflect that feeling that movies give me to the people who are watching the work that I create. And when the time comes when I don't have that sense of awe, I don't have that sense of wonder, when I don't derive it either from the work I'm creating or from the work I'm watching, then I'll go sit down, you know, and I'll teach other folks how to create the same sense of wonder and awe that the cinema has given me. In your films, there's a feeling of acceptance, of forgiveness and coming to grips with where one is in their life and what they've become. Looking at you now and looking at your journey and how you got here, how do you feel about the Barry Jenkins you are today? That's a trippy one, man. I've been working so much over the last like year and a half that I haven't really had a moment to think back on it and really look at where I started and where I am. I do realize it's it's kind of an extraordinary journey, and it's very difficult for me to take any responsibility for it. It all just feels like happenstance in a certain way. But I think there's an irresponsibility in that, too. I think I have to own up to the fact that I think maybe I'm good at what I do. I've never felt that I was good at anything I did. I'm going to have to also own up to the fact that maybe I've earned this because I've never felt like I've earned anything as well. Again, I always use the word happenstance. So I'm going to go home and maybe do some therapy, and then I'll, I'll think when I'll come back to Monaco and give you a better answer. Barry Jenkins, thank you very much. Thank you, man. Really Appreciate good. it. My thanks to Barry Jenkins for joining me here at Maduri House in London. If Beale Street Could Talk is released in cinemas in the United States in December 2018 and in the United Kingdom and other territories in February 2019. The Big Interview is produced by Yulene Gothan and edited by Kenya Scarlett and Nora Hall. I'm Ben Ryland. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>